everyone. This is Jenna Spinelli, one of the hosts of Democracy Works. While we wrap up our winter break, we're excited to bring you an episode from our friends at Trump on Earth. Trump on Earth is a podcast that's taking a closer look at all the changes coming out of Washington on the environment, from what's happening at the EPA to how our public lands will fare under the Trump administration. This episode is called The Red State Paradox and takes a deep dive into how Trump supporters feel about the environment. Host Reed Frazier talks with sociologist Arlie Russell Hochschild about her book Strangers in Their Own Land and what she found from spending time in deep red parts of Louisiana. Trump on Earth is produced by the Allegheny Front, a public media outlet based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. All of their episodes can be found at trumponearth.org. We'll be back next week to begin Season 3 of Democracy Works with What is Democracy? director Astra Taylor. But for now, enjoy the red state paradox from Trump on Earth. President Trump has been moving quickly to dismantle the environmental protections President Obama put in place over the last eight years. The regulation industry is one business I will absolutely put to an end day one. But these actions didn't come from nowhere. They're a direct expression of the will of the people who put him in office. If we keep going on this climate change and regulate our businesses and everything else, I'm not going to be able to survive. Without America getting behind Donald Trump, we're going to lose, and we're going to lose bigger than this flood ever did. Who were the people who gave Trump their votes? And where does their vision for the environment come from? This is Trump on Earth. I'm Reed Frazier. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk to someone who spent five years with some of these voters, looking specifically at their views on the environment. And why, even when they were personally harmed by pollution, they voted against environmental protections and, in effect, for more pollution. He had suffered terribly from non-regulation. And what took his community away was not the presence of government, it was the absence of government. Our guest will be Arlie Russell Hochschild. She's a UC Berkeley sociologist who interviewed dozens of Tea Party members in Louisiana a state plagued by environmental problems about why they overwhelmingly reject stricter environmental rules. We'll talk with her about what she found talking to these voters and, importantly, what this might mean for environmental regulation during the Trump era. That's when Trump on Earth continues. Trump on Earth is produced by the Allegheny Front, a public media outlet in Pennsylvania that covers the environment. For more environmental news, go to alleghenyfront.org. And Point Park University's environmental journalism program. More at pointpark.edu. You can find all of our episodes on our website, trumponearth.org. Have a question? Email us at trumponearth at gmail.com. Before we go on, I have an announcement. Trump on Earth now has a page on Patreon. This is a way for people who listen to the podcast to support it and help defray the costs of studio rental and production of the podcast. It really would mean a lot to get that help from you. So just go to patreon.com slash Trump on Earth to find out more. You spell Patreon with an E, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thanks to all who've given, and thanks in advance for your help. Louisiana is in many ways a beautiful, vibrant state, but it has big problems. It's one of the poorest states in the Union. 
It ranks 49th out of 50 states in the human development scale from the Social Science Research Council. The Annie E. Casey Foundation ranked the state 49th out of 50 states for child well-being. It's losing a football field an hour of coastal wetland to rising seas and has one of the highest cancer rates in the U.S. and, oh, by the way, is near the top in toxic waste disposal per square mile. So we've laid out the problems. One way to solve these problems, one could say, could be more government intervention for things like education, job training, and environmental protection. But that's the last thing many in Louisiana want to see. The state is deep red and a haven of the Tea Party. In 2011, sociologist Arlie Russell Hochschild decided to go there to study the modern conservative movement, in particular how rank-and-file members of the Tea Party viewed environmental issues. After five years, she produced Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. Basically, it's an intellectual reconstruction of how the worldviews of conservative Louisianans were shaped. The book came out last August, and the events of November made it incredibly timely. It was a finalist for the National Book Award, and it's a bestseller. Arlie Russell Hochschild joins me now. Welcome. Hi there. I'm happy to be here. So let's get into your book. One subtitle I surmised from reading it could be, What's the Matter with Louisiana? You talk about a great paradox that you're exploring. Can you explain what you were trying to get at? And what, what was the central question that you wanted to answer in your research and writing? Right. I uh, started uh, with what I thought of as a red state paradox. And it's this. Why uh, would it be that across the nation, it's the poorest states, the states with the most disrupted families, the the most uh, cash-strapped schools, the worst hospitals, and the most car accidents, uh, the most pollution, and the lowest life expectancies are also those states that receive more money from the federal government in aid than they give to it in tax dollars and are generally opposed to uh, the federal government's activities. And Louisiana turned out to be an exaggerated version of the red state paradox. Second poorest state in the country. It had all those troubling rates. And 44% of the state budget came from the federal government. And yes, it's overwhelmingly suspicious of the government and very sympathetic to the Tea Party and very enthusiastic for Donald Trump. So my question was, what experiences lead to the feelings behind this position? And I left Berkeley, California, where I've long taught, uh, which is a, a blue a political bubble, to try and find a political bubble that's as far right as Berkeley is left, and to try and climb an empathy wall so that I can really climb into the shoes of people to whom this position makes sense. Over five years, that's what I did. I wanted to get into some of these folks that you, you write about. One of the first characters that you introduce is a man named Lee Sherman. Mm -hmm. I was going to sort of summarize his story, but maybe you could just tell us who he is and um, you know, what was the sort of story that you wanted to tell from his perspective. 
Yes, I just talked to Leah on the phone the other day. I'm I'm very much in touch with with my new friends uh, there. I should say, Lee lives in Deritter, Louisiana, and he's a retired pipe fitter who worked for Pittsburgh Plate and Glass, and its plant in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and. Here's the thing that that happened to him. He was uh, assigned a job, as he told me in this interview, to late in the evening take the toxic waste that was in what he called a tar buggy and wheel it out to the bayou, to public waters, and to then uh, pull a valve, and it spewed this toxic waste into public waters. And he did that because his boss told him that was his job. This was in the 60s and 70s, a long time ago, and there was a cavalier attitude toward any regulation of pollution. And he himself felt sick through exposure to ethylene dichloride, and he was put on medical leave, but then after months of not getting well, he he uh, was then fired for absenteeism. So he had no love for uh, PPG, and this had happened to him. And later, he uh, joined an environmental group, and uh, this environmental group uh, realized that uh, the, this whole bayou system was highly polluted. This is one of the most polluted areas of the entire country. He then realized it was polluted, that the fish in it were contaminated fish, and they prevailed this group on uh, the city very slowly, the state, to declare that these were contaminated fish and put out a fish advisory at which point the fishermen and all the owners of uh, seafood restaurants were up in arms. This would really tremendously hurt their, their livelihood. Very understandable. So there was a huge meeting, and you know, over a thousand people were assembled, and they were furious at the government. They thought, well, you know, fake laws were being passed. And Lee got up in front of this entire group and said, actually, this is polluted. And I yelled up a big sign that said, I'm the guy that dumped it. And you could have heard a pin drop in this meeting. And people, people wanted to hear his story. And then they believed it. And then they realized that, in fact, uh, they didn't want to sell or fish out contaminated fish. So they, they then sued the company Nowadays, uh, Lee is uh, very strong uh, for the Tea Party and voted for Donald Trump. And on the phone, I said, well, what do you think about the 30% cuts in the EPA? Does that concern you, Lee? And he said, some. So he's a Trump man. He's, he has faith that um, good things will happen. But He's swallowing something that I don't think he likes. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about Lee Sherman because he's someone who you would think would have every reason to sort of side with the idea that these companies like PPG, Pittsburgh Plate Glass, 
um, need stronger, you know, enforcement, somebody watching over their shoulder so they don't dump toxic chemicals into the bayou or, um, you know, cause workers harm the way they harmed him. But paradoxically, he is not, <laughs> that's not the, the route he would choose to take. I asked Lee about that, and I asked him about the red state paradox, and he's, he kind of waved it away. Yes, we know, and we're not happy about Louisiana being in bad shape, but we don't like the government. And I felt the government was taking too many taxes uh, from him. Uh, he's retired now, and uh, no pension from the company, and so he's on Social Security, and you know, he's he would like to pay fewer taxes. I think that's definitely going on. But what I asked him and everyone else that I wrote about came to know is why. The very answer to the question you've you've posed. And then I put to them, after I listened a lot, what I did was make up what I came to think of as their deep story. And then I went back to them and I asked, is this, is this how it feels? Is this, is this ring true? And here was the deep story that I put to Lee. It's told as, as if in, in, in a metaphor. You're waiting in line uh, as in a pilgrimage facing up the hill. And your feet are tired. Uh, the line hasn't moved for a long time. You haven't got a raise in a long time. And you feel a great sense of deserving. You have worked hard and you've gone by the rules. And then you see line cutters. Uh, well, who would they be? They would be blacks and women who through federally mandated affirmative action have finally been given access to jobs formerly reserved for whites and for men. And then you see immigrants and then you see refugees, and you think of them as line cutters. They're cutting in line unfairly, pushing you back in line. And then another moment of this uh, deep story of the right, you see Barack Obama waving to the line cutters. And it seems like, oh, he's, he's waving to them. He's their president. And how about me? Is he my president? And isn't he a line cutter too? How did his single mother, a woman of modest means, pay for a Harvard education? Something fishy. As many people told me that. They couldn't imagine that there were full scholarships for gifted students, which there are. And so, in a final moment of this right-wing deep story, someone ahead of them in line, more educated, born on the coasts, turns around and says, oh, you ill-educated, backward, racist, homophobic, sexist, uh, redneck, you know, an insult. And then you feel like a stranger in your own land, that the culture isn't yours, the, you know, your economic standing is, is, is going backwards, if, if anything, and, and you're estranged. And I think this was... So I asked Lee, is this deep story rainy bells for you. He said, you've read my mind. And he didn't blame his moving back in line on automation or offshoring. 
Anything that in this metaphor is sort of over the brow of the hill, you can't quite see it. Didn't seem to him like a robot was uh, cutting in line. He sort of blamed it, blamed it on these groups. That was huge for him. That was big. You know, Louisiana ha- is sort of home to some of these horrible environmental di- disasters like the BP oil spill, but there's many others. There's the Bayou Corn um, sinkhole, which is this crazy industrial accident involving a salt dome thousands of feet below a, a bayou that sucked, like, I watched a video online, it sucks whole trees, just made this sort of sacrifice zone. But, you know, the folks there sort of struggle to sort of place blame on corporate malfeasance. They don't place it on corporate malfeasance. That's what I was opening my ears to. What is their thinking and what's behind their their thinking about that? I interviewed a man who, after Bayou Corn had been officially evacuated, was still living there. He couldn't bring himself to leave. He loved this community. And his interview with me began with his saying, you know, the problem with the federal government is it takes community away. And, you know, we ought to have neighborly feeling and do for each other. And big government comes and offers services that replace neighborly help. And yet, in the course of his life, what happened to him was that it was an under-regulated industrial accident. It was an under-regulated industry, Texas brine, which drilled a hole into the bottom of a bayou and on down into uh, the side of a salt dome, leading that side to collapse far under uh, under the bayou and to draw uh, the waters of the bayou down. And so he described what it was like. First, there were earthquakes where there had never been earthquakes before. And then he said, I thought I was having a heart attack. Suddenly everything was jiggly. Very alarmed by that. And then he began to notice methane gas. It was when it was raining, it was like Alka Seltzer tablets in the in the puddles and and became dangerous. What if you lit a match and there was an explosion? But he had a gas monitor in his garage. That's how much he didn't want to leave his home and was staying there. And there were boxes. He was eventually going to have to leave. But when I first interviewed him, that was the story. And he had suffered terribly from non-regulation. And what took his community away was not the presence of government, it was the absence of government or a countervailing force against and to regulate industry. And he was big Tea Party and big Trump uh, supporter. I tried to really understand what the feeling about the government was. And in his case, partly the federal government represented the powerful North that was always wagging its moral finger at the South and blaming the, the sin of slavery on the South, on the present inhabitants of the South. And he felt, uh, you know, the carpetbaggers and even environmentalists he saw as kind of coming with in a, in a scolding spirit. So that was the first thing. He saw 
the federal government as an instrument of the North, but the federal government in his mind was also an instrument of inept officials. And he took that idea from his experience with the Louisiana state government, and he had a real point on that, because it was not, in fact, really regulating polluters. So people are mad at the state. They say, wait a minute, why is my tax dollar going to pay people that aren't protecting me? Meanwhile, the companies are looking looking good because they seem to promise jobs, although there are very few permanent well-paying jobs of this highly automated industry, petro and oil. So the first, uh, the, the government, federal government seems like an instrument of the North, then the federal government looks like an instrument of inept bureaucrats because they think the federal government is a bigger, better version of state government. And thirdly, the federal government seems like an instrument of the line cutters. As you see it, how does that sort of line cutting narrative fit into environmental regulations and the view that environmental regulations are bad and can prevent freedom. Well, there's something very poignant going on. And in the book, I point to the paradox that actually it's residents of red states that suffer the highest rate of pollution. The good people I met in Louisiana are, in fact, victims of pollution more than than others. I, I came to feel that if you live in Berkeley, California, you use plastic objects, you, you know, and you enjoy a clean environment. But in Louisiana, uh, where these things are made and industries are permitted to pollute, and a population is made to adapt to that pollution, a, a giant sacrifice is being made and 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 paradoxically, the people suffering from it are, in a way, embracing that. And they do it, and I, I get to explore this in the book in different psychological ways. There were some who opposed regulating polluters, saying, my party's the Republican Party, the Republican Party opposes regulation, so I oppose regulation, including of polluters. So they, they did it out of loyalty to a party that they strongly identified with. Others took the position really of a cowboy. It was more personal. You know, I'm tough, you're tough, Mother Nature's tough, and a tendency to deny the destruction of the environment in that way. You know, we can take it. And there was some pride in a capacity to endure. And then there was a third that was more sacrificial in nature, uh, it was a woman who, you know, basically she was very religious and was a valued, really, one's capacity to renounce wishes. Sometimes you had to give things up. We couldn't always have what we want. And it was in that spirit that she said, pollution is the sacrifice we make for capitalism. She loved clean environment. She was a great lover of nature, but she... Uh, so it wasn't a callous disregard or a hardening of of heart toward the damage of polluters, but but more a sacrificial orientation of well, 
I really love the environment and I would like it to be clean. It matters. I understand this hurts. And children with rare brain cancers, no, this is, this is terrible. But it's the sacrifice we make. So in those three ways, as the, the sort of the party loyalist or the cowboy or the, the worshiper in a way, were three psychological pathways through which people expressed an adaptation to pollution. And because they didn't see a way through of keeping the jobs they wanted and living with clean air and clean water. These two things can go together. There's a lot of research, and I refer to some of it in the book, that actually cleaning up the environment uh, goes with a more vital uh, economy. There are lots of different... Uh, studies on this. Basically, uh, that's the story, but it's not the story they lived with in Louisiana. I'm wondering, you know, after reading the book, if there's a, like a lesson that you think can be learned from these folks in Louisiana, not so much in sort of how can the environmental movement, you know, sort of reach these people. I mean, maybe that's one of the outcomes, but how can these folks who vote against uh, you know, tougher environmental laws, how can they get a cleaner environment? Yeah, I think uh, there, first of all, are already some amazing environmental activists in Louisiana. I was, I'm just about to see one. I'm about to go back. The Louisiana Environmental Action League, and her name is Ann Rolf, and she's uh, in charge of the Bucket Brigade. And we can give support to the environmentalists there. And we can reach across. There is, in fact, across this nation, a very little known, I think, movement to get a communication going between left and right, between coasts and inland, uh, uh, between north and south. If you look at the Bridge Alliance, you'll find an array of some 70 different organizations so with names like High from the Other Side and so on that are trying to get a conversation across partisan lines uh, going, even though our leaders aren't doing well at that. And there's an organization called Green Tea. These are green tea partiers, people who are very much in favor of uh, renewable energy and clean environment, uh, but they're on the right. So I think there's a lot of common ground on just this issue. There are more jobs in solar alone than there are in the nation, and high-paid jobs, I think uh, an average of 40000 a year, than there are in coal. But, you know, the facts just aren't out there uh, because we live in these in these silos. But I actually recently went with my son, who uh, is in California, and he's uh, energy commissioner in charge of renewable energy. And he came with me to uh, visit Mike Sheff, the man in Bayou Corn who just lost his home to a sinkhole. I said, well, look, we're opposite ends of the spectrum, but is there some common ground on renewables? And uh, we went out fishing. I said, look, I'm just going to hold the tape recorder. You guys go to it. And they did. And there was. The conversation ended in a kind of funny way because 
David, my son, said, well, how about it, Mike? What about solar energy here? And Mike replied, you know, we're running out of oil anyway. We're going to yet more dangerous areas uh, with untested technology. Yeah, no, I'd be all for uh, renewables. I'd love to have solar uh, powered right on my roof. And then David added, and you know, it could mitigate the effects of global warming. And then Mike said, no, 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 I don't believe in global warming. I'm on the right. But if you want to sell the idea of renewable energy to people like me, what you say is, you can be an independent entrepreneur and feed clean energy back into the grid and get paid for it. And you can be free and independent. Uh, talk about it that way. <laughs> I thought this was very funny that uh, a Tea Party Trump supporter was explaining to the Democratic environmentalist how to sell the idea of clean energy to a right-winger. It's good marketing advice. Yeah. Arlie Russell Hochschild is the author of Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. Arlie, thanks so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Trump on Earth. I'm Reed Frazier. If you like our show, please consider supporting us through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash trumponearth to find out more. You can find all our episodes on trumponearth.org. This is a production of The Allegheny Front, a public radio show covering the environment in Pennsylvania. We're at alleghenyfront.org and Point Park University's Environmental Journalism Program. More at pointpark.edu. Thanks to grad student Rebecca Lesner and our intern Paige Walter. Our producer and digital editor is Andy Kubis. See you next time.